You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 69 of the GDPR Weekly Show, and this week we have new listeners from London, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Gloucester, Derby, Northampton, Peterborough, Guildford, Paisley, Stoke-on-Trent, Cardiff, Chelmsford, Sheffield, Portsmouth, Southampton, Colchester, Winchester, Ipswich, Blackburn, Leeds, Milton Keynes, Reading, Swansea and Farnborough from Hampshire, that's all in the UK. In Ireland, we have new listeners this week from Dublin, County Wicklow, County Wexford and County Kerry. In France, we have new listeners from Paris, Marseille and Nice. In Zurich, we have new listeners in Ticino, Geneva and Basel. In Barcelona, in Spain, in new listeners in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, The Hague and Utrecht. In Germany, we have new listeners in Dusseldorf, Cologne and Bonn. In Denmark, new listeners in Copenhagen. In Sweden, new listeners in Spain. In Norway, new listeners in Oslo. In Finland, new listeners in Helsinki. New listeners in Warsaw, in Poland. In Vilnius, in Lithuania. In Minsk, in Belarus. In Vienna, in Austria. In Venice and Milan, in Italy. In Belgrade, in Serbia. In Moscow, Russia. In Ankara, in Turkey. In Tel Aviv, in Israel. In Kinshasa, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That's our first ever listeners in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, so a big welcome to you. In Karnataka, in India. In Bangkok, in Thailand. In Shanghai, in China. In Tokyo, in Japan. In Australia, we have new listeners this week in Melbourne and Sydney. In Brazil, we have new listeners in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. In Colombia, we have new listeners in Santander. And then in the USA, we have new listeners this week in Pasco, Dallas, San Francisco, Fort Worth, Salt Lake City, Rochester, San Diego, Raleigh, Washington DC, Denver, Miami, Tucson, Los Angeles, Boston, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Seattle and Lafayette. So, good to see a whole range of listeners right around the world, new listeners, and so welcome to you. And of course, a big shout out to all of my regular listeners who I know listen again all over the world. And it's great to have so many of you along every week listening to the show and catching up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. I really welcome your feedback on the show. So if you have any ideas for uh, articles or new items you'd like to see or people you'd like me to interview, or perhaps you'd even like to have me interview you yourself for the show, more than happy to do that do please drop me a line to podcast at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. And I do really welcome all of your feedback, and I read every single piece of feedback you send into the show. And unfortunately, I don't have time to reply to each of them individually, but wherever possible, we do look to incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. So please do keep your feedback coming. And just a reminder, we only have another two episodes now of the GDPR Weekly Show before Christmas, and then we'll be having a Christmas break, but there'll be more about that later in the show. So, in a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news of a data breach affecting people with a postal vote in the southeast Dorset area, so the area around Bournemouth, Pool and Christchurch. We then have news of a data breach by British American Tobacco. 
We then take a look at the implications of GDPR in cases of international arbitration. We had results of a survey into the responses to data subject access requests. We have an article on Brazil and a look at how Brazil is so near and yet so far in its implementation of a GDPR equivalent law which would really put Brazil in first place in South America if it were to be implemented. We then have a look at employee monitoring and GDPR and what the implications are there. And finally, we have news that the EU Privacy Directive may, rather than becoming legislation in 2020, actually just die by the wayside. It's worth listening to that article, but I would stress that the EU Privacy Directive is not the same as GDPR, and GDPR will still continue regardless of what happens in the future to the EU Privacy Directive. So as always, amidst better articles, I hope you find the programme useful and entertaining, and thank you for listening. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We're into the final week of the 2019 general election campaign here in the UK. And this week, personal data of thousands of users across South East Dorset has been mistakenly sent to the wrong address due to a blunder with the delivery of postal votes. In several cases, multiple voting papers were delivered to one address by the printer contracted by Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole Council. The council is responsible for overseeing the general election in the Bournemouth East, Bournemouth West, Christchurch, Mid Dorset and North Pool and Pool constituencies for the general election. The council says it's launched an investigation into the issue. A spokesman said it received 32 reports by Thursday but had no idea of the true scale. A source who asked not to be identified said that between 4,000 and 6,000 people may have been affected. So you can see there's a big gap there between what's been officially acknowledged in terms of 32 people and the potential for it to be up to 6,000 people, which doubtless is why the ICO was taking a keen interest in this event. The Council, for its part, has recognised that it is a huge and very serious data protection breach. They explained that postal votes are often requested by people who know they're going to be away over the election and that this is one of the most important elections we've had in most people's lifetimes, and some of these people may now not be able to take part. They said the council had been urged to make the issue public yesterday, but had tried to keep it under wraps. A council spokesman said that they'd been planning not to go public with this until all the postal ballots had been sent out. They went on to say that with 55,000 registered postal votes in the Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul Council area, there's always the potential for issues to arise, especially when dealing with a snap election, they said. They went on to say that in this case it appears a handful of postal voting statement packs sent out enclosed not only the individual's forms, but their forms belonging to other voters. The council's view is that the numbers appear small, and as these have been reported, they are formally recorded, and a member of staff personally sent out to collect the forms, put them in the required envelopes, and re-deliver to the correct recipient. They went on to say that the council had already launched an investigation with their printing supplier into how this has happened and apologised to anyone who has been affected. 
We would also like to be reassured that due to the high number of fail-safe checks and measures in place with the postal voting system, we're confident that the risk of anyone casting more than one vote is fully mitigated, the council went on to say. Errors were also made on some of the ballot papers which had birth years prefixed with 2-0 on forms delivered to people born before the turn of the century. The council also blamed its printers for delays issuing postal ballots ahead of the local elections back in May. As we said earlier, the ICO is investigating the issue and because it involves voting, it's also been referred to the Electoral Commission and a spokesman for the Electoral Commission said it was aware of the issue and was working with the council to understand how the error had occurred. Now, we want to try and put this into some context because even if it is 6,000 people, there are, as the council correctly points out, quite a number of checks into making sure that the voting paper has been returned by the person it was meant to be sent to. So the danger for electoral fraud here is very low. However, in terms of GDPR, of course, there has been quite an issue here. I think it's fair to say that voting papers and presence on the electoral roll are something which the ICO is correctly looking into. And if we have any update on this story in the next few weeks, we will, of course, bring it to you here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The second data breach this week relates to a Romanian web platform owned by the international tobacco company, British American Tobacco, who have one of their main UK offices in Woking in Surrey. And the web platform has suffered a data breach and a ransomware attack. The data breach was discovered on an unsecured Elasticsearch server located in Ireland, which involves close to 352 gigabytes of data. In addition, it was found that the hackers had already got to the data and that the server also contained a readme file with a ransom request in which a hacker or group of hackers threatened to delete the data from the server if their demands aren't met. The hackers are demanding a Bitcoin payment in exchange for the data. We've been unable to make contact with a spokesperson for British American Tobacco to discover quite how much the ransom demand is or was for. The web platform is part of a British American Tobacco Romania promotional campaign targeting adult smokers. British American Tobacco is one of the world's largest manufacturers of tobacco and nicotine products. Through the platform, Romanian residents can win tickets to parties and events featuring well-known local and international performers. Romanian law prohibits most kinds of tobacco advertising. However, the Romanian law does permit certain types of promotional campaigns and event sponsorships, providing those events exclusively target existing smokers over the age of 18. The data breach involves sensitive personal data of users such as full name, email, phone number, date of birth, gender, the IP address and the cigarette and tobacco product preferences of that person. It's understood that the database remained open and unsecured for more than two months. It's believed that the data breach started on September 22nd and the database was finally closed on November 27th. We've not been able to get much information at all from British American Tobacco about this data breach, but we will be following up with them and bring you an update in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. One issue, of course, will be which ICO decides to investigate this because it's one of these 
it's an interesting multinational scenarios where the people affected are in Romania. The database itself was held on a server in Ireland, and yet British American Tobacco are a company registered in the UK. So we wait and see what happens there. Um, but as I say, when we do have any updates, we will of course bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The International Congress and Convention Association, the ICCA, and the International Bar Association, the IBA, have established a joint task force on data protection in international arbitration proceedings. The task force will develop guidance for arbitration professionals with regard to data protection in arbitration proceedings. This guidance, which it expects to be able to publish for comment later this year or in early 2020, aims to provide practical guidance on the potential impact of data protection principles. In particular, it will recommend our information evidence subject to GDPR is to be handled in international arbitration proceedings. The task force has arisen because of the overriding international impact of GDPR. In international arbitration proceedings, information and evidence are gathered and transferred to the opposing party, their legal counsel, arbitrators and professional third parties, which may of course be across different jurisdictions. Because such evidence or information may be subject to GDPR, a careful review at the onset of arbitration is required to determine whether electronically stored information can be transferred and produced to other parties. It should be remembered of course here that they need to look a little broader than that because GDPR applies to paper documents every much as bit as it does to uh, electronic documents. But leaving that to one side for a moment, the study group is looking at how the information can be transferred and produced to other parties and still stay compliant with GDPR. One of the fundamentals of GDPR is that processing your protected personal information is prohibited unless expressly permitted by GDPR. As an EU regulation, no local law implementation is required to adopt GDPR and it applies directly in each member state of the EU. Although, as we know from previous episodes, and as any of you have had training from us will know, there are slight variations in GDPR between EU states, but it's true to say that the majority of the regulations are common across all 28 EU countries. Its application is broad. GDPR applies to any company or entity that controls or processes personal data as part of the activities of its branches established in the EU, or if it targets or monitors data subjects in the EU, regardless of where in the world the company itself might be located. Protected personal data relates to the information of an identifier, a data subject, it's a living person essentially, and covers simple information such as work email address, telephone number or IP address, and generally anything through which a person can be identified. The data controller means any personal organisational body that determines the means of processing personal data, and a data processor refers to any entity that processes personal data on behalf of a data controller. The GDPR also defines processing very broadly as any operation that is performed on personal data and specifically includes activities such as collection, use, disclosure by transmission and dissemination, or otherwise making available personal data. These broad definitions of personal data and data processing 
mean that GDPR can apply to any party, legal counsel, arbitrator, tribunal, professional third party, participating in arbitration within the GDPR reach. Personal data processing during an arbitration includes review of information or evidence by which an individual is identified or is identifiable, even if the personal data is contained in a business-related document. Now, there are exemptions under GDPR, of course, which allow sharing of personal information under specified circumstances. These include, amongst other things, the explicit and well-informed consent of the data subject or data subjects, and importantly, the necessity to process personal data for the performance of a contract or to comply with a legal obligation or for the purpose of legitimate interest. Interestingly, while document production in international arbitration would appear at first glance to fall into the category compliance with legal obligation, the exemption only explicitly covers legal obligations created by member state law such as a court order, not ones created by an arbitration tribunal order. Whether in fact data processing and sharing in international arbitration falls within this exemption is still a matter of debate in the legal profession. Nonetheless, the general understanding is that disclosure obligations in arbitration proceedings satisfy at least the last exemption provided for in GDPR, i.e. the processing is necessary for the purposes of legitimate interest pursued by the data controller. How these exemptions would be interpreted for purposes of ensuring the integrity of evidence deliberation in an international arbitration would need to be carefully monitored. It certainly will require a careful balance between the data subject's interests and the interest to maintain a robust evidence process in an international arbitration proceeding. As it currently stands, the data controllers and processors, i.e. the legal parties themselves, their counsel, arbitrator, tribunal or experts, are required to ensure appropriate technical and organisational measures are in place to safeguard handling of personal data. This means that every arbitration participant has to consider at the outset of an arbitration whether or not GDPR applies to use of personal data, and if so, what rules apply. Practitioners should be aware that the GDPR may be relevant to their arbitration, regardless of where the parties are, and the arbitration is seated, if there's any involvement at all of people or organisations in Europe. So we'll be keeping a watch on the progress of this working group, and once we have any conclusions from their discussions, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. It is perhaps also worth mentioning at this point that if you are involved in international arbitration and you want help with understanding how GDPR may affect your uh, evidence or your dissemination of evidence within the arbitration proceedings, we would be delighted to assist you, so please do just drop us a line to podcasts at insurety.co.uk, that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, or just visit our website at www.insurety.co.uk and make contact with us and one of our experts will be very happy to help you and guide you through what can be a bit of a minefield of a process where more than one country is involved. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A survey conducted by Talend, a cloud data management specialist, and released their details this week. And the survey shows that there's still a long way to go in terms of getting companies fully compliant with GDPR. One of the areas that they looked at in the survey 
specifically was how many companies successfully provided the information required by a data subject access request under GDPR within the 30 days allowed within the legislation. And what they found was that taken overall, only 42% of companies produced an accurate copy of requested personal data within the 30 days. They also found that 20% of companies surveyed returned incorrect or incomplete data, while 38% either didn't reply or just were not contactable. However, it has to be said that is an improvement when, when this survey was last conducted in September 2018, when some 70% of companies failed to provide data within one month. This year's survey covered a sample of 103 companies, mostly based in the European Union, 84% of them, but also in the Asia-Pacific and in the US, just to check how they were complying with GDPR, because although the organisations were in the Asia-Pacific region or in the US, they conducted business in Europe. The survey found out whether companies had dedicated ways for consumers to request the personal information the company held on them, but also carried out requests just making a simple email request to the organisation to assess how quickly the companies complied. It also determined whether the data could be directly accessed and reused by the individual to see whether the data supplied was meeting the data portability requirements of GDPR. Successful responses were gained from European organisations in just under 38% of cases, with incorrect data returned in 16.5% of cases. A quarter, 25% of the companies from which GDPR data was requested in Europe did not reply, and 5% were uncontactable. The Asia-Pacific based companies surveyed failed to successfully return data at all, while just under 4% of the companies contacted in the US did so. The most responsive sector surveyed was education, which had a 100% response rate, but only 50% of those responses produced accurate data. Financial services companies responded successfully in 47% of cases, but produced incorrect data on 26% of occasions and did not reply in 21%. Retail organisations successfully responded to 46% of requests, but supplied the wrong data on 21% of occasions. Retailers failed to reply in just under one-third, 29% of all the requests. Transport, travel and hospitality companies, with correct and timely responses, did so in 45% of cases, and incorrect data was supplied in 10% of cases. Some 40% of requests to transport, travel and hospitality companies, however, resulted in no reply at all. The public sector was the least responsive, with no reply recorded in 43% of cases, while correct data was successfully returned 29% of the time. In 29% of the cases, public sector bodies were uncontactable. Media companies, telecommunication companies and utilities were nearly as bad, providing accurate data on only 32% of occasions, and in 26% of cases, incorrect data was supplied, and in 37% of cases with telecommunication companies and utilities, there was no reply at all. Jean-Michel Franco, Senior Director of Data Governance at Talent, said, These new results show clearly that data subject access rights is still the Achilles heel of most organisations. To fully comply with GDPR, it's necessary to understand where the data is, how it's processed and by whom, as well as to ensure that the data is trusted. Organisations must do more to regain the trust of their data subjects and be aware of the risk they take that they risk very significant fines and significant reputational damage in the event of non-compliance. And I think, I've got to say, as a GDPR professional, as a GDPR practitioner, I find these results not surprising. 
but at the same time find them disappointing because I'd like to think that most companies were getting better at supplying data and satisfying data subject access requests. It is a crucial element of GDPR. It may not be an element yet where we've seen some heavy fines as we have for other areas of GDPR, but believe me, the ICO is watching, and I think it's fair to say that in 2020, this again, like data retention, is going to be an area where the ICO pays more attention and where some more substantial penalties are likely to be coming. So, if you or your organisation would like help with either how you satisfy data subject access requests within the 30 days allowed by GDPR or how you can gain extra time to reply to those requests and or also how to deal with data retention and ensuring you have a firm regime for data retention in your organisation, we will of course be delighted to help you. So once again, please either get in contact with us via podcasts at insurity.co.uk or go to the www.insurity.co.uk website and contact us via the website and one of our specialists will be delighted to help you and provide you with some good guidance on what your organisation can do to make sure that you are in the percentage of organisations who are replying in time and are replying with accurate data. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. After many years of procrastination, Brazil has finally adopted some comprehensive data protection legislation based on GDPR. In mid-2018, the government approved Law 13.709, known by its Portuguese acronym LGPD. Public agencies and private companies are scrambling to understand what the new law entails and how to respond. They have until August 2020 to work it out which is August 2020 is the date set at the moment by the government in Brazil for the implementation of this new legislation. It has to be said that the LGPD is largely based on GDPR, so it's good to see another country adopting GDPR for its core data protection policies. Now, Brazil has been a long time getting here. The long road to creation of a far-reaching data protection law began way back in 2010, when the National Consumer Secretary, a unit of the Ministry of Justice, publicly circulated a draft bill of data protection. The bill was opened up again for consultation in 2015, two years after Edward Snowden disclosed details about US and Five Eyes surveillance efforts around the world, including in Brazil. Unnerved by the vulnerabilities of Brazil's networks and users, the government accelerated the approval of the bill, assembling over 2,000 submissions from business, non-profit organisations and universities along the way. Confident that the bill was ready, President Dilma Rousseff sent it to Congress in 2016, where it became Bill 5276-2016. Despite President Rousseff's urgency to get data protection legislation passed, Congress stalled because another data protection law, Bill 330-2013, which was heavily supported by private sector, because it granted companies more discretion in handling personal data, was at the same time being simultaneously reviewed by the Brazilian Senate. Then, in 2018, the Cambridge Analytica revelations finally kicked Brazil's lawmakers into action. What especially bothered Brazilians was the news that Cambridge Analytica's Brazilian partners, Aponte Estrella, 
a Sao Paulo-based consulting group, had quietly collected data on over 443,000 citizens in 2017. With public outrage mounting, President Michel Timmer approved PLC 53-2018, also known as Law 13.709, which formally introduced the LGPD in August 2018. This law was closer to the original Bill 5276 of 2016. So what does this new law do? Brazil's LGPD, as we've said, is modelled on European Union GDPR. This means that Brazil has adopted a user-centric approach to data processing, giving individual citizens considerable control of their own data. Specifically, Article 18 of LGPD notes that individuals can exercise the right to be informed about the use of their data by government and corporate entities, rectify and remove their personal information from data sets, and oppose efforts to collect or manipulate their data. It even requires that organisations explain their use of automated decision-making processes that collect and use personal data, so you can see how much GDPR has influenced LGPD. LGPD also has extraterritorial dimensions, meaning that global firms offering services in Brazil are required to comply with the law for services outside of Brazil. In addition, there are situations where data can be collected without the subject's consent, which are framed as instances where there are legitimate interests. Again, another idea imported from GDPR. However, nothing's ever simple, and despite passing LGPD, Brazil's government does not currently have a National Data Protection Authority, it doesn't currently have an ICO, to enforce the law's basic provisions because President Timir vetoed the creation of AMPD, which would have been a federal agency to safeguard and enforce data protection rules. President Timer argued that the creation of a new national agency was prerogative of the executive branch and not Congress. However, before leaving office, President Timer introduced a parcel solution to this problem in the form of Provisional Measure 869 of 2018, which has subsequently been converted to Law 13.853 in 2019, which created the rules to establish the AMPD. The law provides an interim agency with a temporary two-year mandate, after which the federal government can decide whether or not to upgrade it to a permanent body. Since assuming office in 2019, however, President Jair Bolsonaro has already restricted the ability of the new agency to impose penalties on entities that violate LGPD. So, there's still no sign of any federal ordinance to formally establish AMPD. In the absence of a permanent government organisation, or ICO, to implement the law, Many private companies, public agencies and civic groups lack sufficient guidance to properly comply with LGPD, whilst most Brazilians have no idea how the country's data protection rules will be interpreted or enforced. Some members of the Brazilian Congress are currently discussing a new bill to postpone LGPD to August 2022. Others privately wonder if the bill should be voided altogether. This is a far cry from a year ago when Brazil was positioned to lead the way on data protection in South America. The truth now is that Brazil is falling behind. It's critical that this does not stall, but the implementation of AMPD is accelerated. At a minimum, the executive branch must propose candidates for positions in the interim agency so that Congress can approve them before the August 2020 deadline. Otherwise, it's inevitable that the deadline will slip. And I think it would be wrong if it slips to 2022, because I think Brazil has an opportunity here to really pick up some worldwide business 
by being ahead of the curve in the South American continent and it would be a shame to see that lapse. We will keep an eye on the progress of AMPD and we'll bring any news to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We were approached this week to provide some guidance on employee monitoring and GDPR. And I think the first thing to say is that employee monitoring and privacy don't have to be at war with each other. But there are some fundamentals to bear in mind. I think the first thing is to know why you're monitoring your employees and what data you're going to collect. If you're using employee monitoring software, then do you need to know what an individual is doing or can you anonymise that data so you just get an overall picture of how a department is performing? Because obviously if you can anonymise the data, then a lot of worries about GDPR with that data largely go away. If you have to keep information on individual employees and their performance, or for example, you might be collecting information to protect your data from insider threats, then you might want to review employee data access, restrict data movement, or determine unusual behaviour. In these cases, obviously, you do need to identify who the employee is. I think the important thing here is to make sure you've got employee buy-in and that employees know why you're doing it and what you're doing. So make a plan for your data management. Data privacy laws require companies to make a reasonable effort to protect their customer and employee data. Since employee monitoring initiatives necessarily create a lot of data, you need to make sure you've got processes in place to protect that information. And do think about how long you keep it. We mentioned in the last couple of episodes of GDPR show about um, data retention periods and really do bring that to mind. Think about how long you need to keep data for and don't keep it for any longer than is absolutely necessary. And I think the other thing is to provide avenues for feedback from your employees. Some organisations may want to implement employee monitoring initiatives in secret. While the temptation to attain unvarnished insights can be alluring, when it comes to promoting employee privacy, open and honest communication, in our experience, is the best way of proceeding. So communicate often and honestly with your employees, ensuring that they understand the purpose of the monitoring, what software is being used to provide oversight, what data you're collecting, and what the plan is for utilising and securing any personal data you collect. And at the same time, don't let communication be a one-way street. Provide opportunities for regular feedback that keeps every employee on board while accounting for their concerns and insights. By doing that, you'll find that actually AU employees are much more likely to not complain about being monitored and B, they'll understand that doing it is actually helping them in their career and not just helping you with your bottom line. When you produce any reports, though, from it, do consider whether you need to redact personal information or if it's just on the screen, then whether you need to restrict access to need-to-know people. So, for example, a manager can only see the results of staff in his or her department. It's important to remember that data privacy is now the default ethos, and that applies to everyone, including your own employees. Investing in this priority now is bound to pay off on many fronts well into the future. And if you'd like help with employee monitoring and how to do that and stay within the bounds of GDPR, then do a course 
contact us and one of our specialists will be more than happy to help you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally this week, news that the e-privacy directive may never actually see the light of day. Despite years of consultation around Europe and the view that the e-privacy directive fitted well alongside GDPR and it should be stated that if e-privacy dies that doesn't mean anything changes in GDPR so don't worry your GDPR implementation still needs to 100% carry on as it has been doing but with regard to the e-privacy directive itself there is a growing view amongst diplomats that the entire e-privacy area may be an area where regulation is too difficult and that the e-privacy directive will be dropped as being too hard to fix. Now we as GDPR practitioners have to say that we sincerely hope that doesn't happen. I think the e-privacy directive has many things which fit well alongside GDPR but it is true that as time has gone on and more and more lobbying has taken place particularly by significant large publishing companies within the EU, that the requirements of the e-privacy directive have been watered down and down to the point where, in some ways, perhaps it is becoming a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, Except it is broke in some places and it does need fixing. But there's just not the will there, I think it has to be said, amongst the legislators in the EU to actually push this through and get it actually finally to be a regulation just like GDPR is. And to give you an example of how these lobbying groups are having an impact, in the most recent version of the e-privacy directive put together under the current Austrian presidency of the Council of the European Union, there's a new bad idea. It says, and I quote, in some cases the use of processing and storage capabilities of terminal equipment and the selection of information from end users' terminal equipment may also be necessary for providing the information society service requested by the end user, such as services required to safeguard freedom of expression and information including for journalistic purposes, such as an online newspaper or other press publications that is wholly or mainly financed by advertising, provided that, in addition, the end user has been provided with clear, precise and user-friendly information about the purposes of cookies or similar techniques and has accepted such use. This basically means that sites like the Daily Mail website could continue to plant hundreds of cookies on your PC or your Mac or whatever you're using to access the internet and providing at some point you clicked on a bar at the bottom of the screen and said yes, then that was all fine. And that wasn't the original idea of the privacy directive. The idea was to really clamp down on that. But as I say, this is the way it's now been watered down. Um, so we wait and see what happens as we move into 2020. And we will, of course, keep you updated on any movement with the proposed privacy regulation, whether it actually does become a regulation or whether it actually just gets quietly dropped by the wayside. But we'll keep you updated on that as we move forward into 2020 in upcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. 
please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.